started in the book of Romans at the same time that we did, and they're up through chapter 7. <laughs> Oops. Um, we, are, we are going to pick up the pace, I promise. Um, kind of. Um, also, you know that next week we will meet. There will be a, a, a Bible study here next week. However, preceding the Bible study will be a congregational meeting. Uh, at which time we'll vote for officers. That, that meeting we don't expect to last very long, so uh, we, we're, we'll cut things a bit here and there, but basically the format will be the same. We'll have the, the congregational meeting up front for the first 15 minutes or so and then pres- uh, resume um, what we're doing here. And then, gentlemen, you can play basketball tonight if you like after our study. We're at uh, verse 18 uh, of... Um, of Romans 1, and I want to read uh, as we begin through verse 23, so follow as I read. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse because though, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like a corruptible man, and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. I, I have said to you a couple of times that uh, what we will address with this passage is a question that seems to frequent the minds of uh, the people of God, that question, of course, being... What happens, what, what, what can you say about the poor, innocent native in Africa? And we will get that, ladies and gentlemen, and you'll, you'll need to kind of put these two things together uh, this week and next week, and then you will have a very comprehensive answer to that question. What about the poor, innocent native in Africa? But um, uh, for the time being, we need to work our way through it very slowly and perhaps even cautiously. You'll recall uh, two weeks ago <clears throat> that I spent the whole, my whole time uh, looking at those first three, those first five words, for the wrath of God, and uh, tried to uh, state all over again that um, uh, this, which is so um, uh, unacceptable, so unenjoyable uh, in the in the lives of the uh, pagan world, is clearly uh, taught and um, included in a picture that you get of God. Now. Uh, Having said that, I want to point one other thing out, and then we'll dive in more deeply. I want you to notice, for the wrath of God is revealed. Now, remember, I made quite a uh, to-do over that same word being found in verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And you will notice that here that same word is used, for the wrath of God is revealed. Both wrath and righteousness are things that are revealed. There's a sense, ladies and gentlemen, that we never would have known anything about them (coughs) had not God chosen to expose those things about himself to us. Um, Wrath is as much a revealed characteristic of God as is his righteousness. And uh, neither of those can be set aside. Those two things go together. Um, I am not here to seek to prove to you those things because I am here to declare those things. Uh, Those things are simply 
revealed. And my job is to announce them, to proclaim them. And, and it gives you some idea about the nature uh, of this role. My, my, my function is not simply to make up things. My, my job is not simply to, uh, it's not to maybe even explain, but simply to declare, to proclaim those things that have been revealed. But uh, I, I do think it's somewhat interesting that you see, once again, you see righteousness, this great good news about the righteousness of God provided for us, set right alongside this other issue that we don't particularly enjoy hearing about, that being his wrath. Both of those are subjects of the uh, of God's they are things that God revealed about himself now um, let me read to you verse 18 in its entirety again because we'll spend quite a bit of time um, in fact ladies and gentlemen we're going to finish chapter 1 tonight and tomorrow uh, next Wednesday night um, because in essence verses 19 to 32 are, are nothing more than a sermon that Paul preaches on his text, and his text is verse 18. That's what he's trying to communicate, and then he expands his presentation of that in verses 19 through 32 to the rest of the chapter. But this is what he is saying. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, ladies and gentlemen, first of all, a, a very simple question to ask. Um, what is God angry about? What is his wrath against? What is this wrath revealed? The text tells us very clearly what God is angry about. He is angry against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. Now, ladies and gentlemen, here is a significant little, uh, I hope, point or insight or whatever you want to call it. But I want you to notice the order. You will see that God is upset. He is angry about ungodliness and unrighteousness. Now, gang, most of us in here, I, in fact, uh, I would love to thank all of us, but most of us in here, we believe in a Bible that has been inspired. It is inerrant. We even use this word. It is plenary, verbal inspiration to which we are committed. Plenary is a word that simply means full. If you've ever been to a workshop, sometimes they have a plenary session. That means that everybody gathers for the same session. That means that... <clears throat> um, everything in this Bible, this is not a scientific, this is not a history book, but when it speaks historically, it, it speaks accurately. It is not a science book, but when it speaks about science, it speaks accurately. That's what we mean when we say we believe in plenary inspiration. When we say we believe in verbal inspiration, this is what we're saying. We are saying that we believe that the words, the choice of words, is very important. That the Holy Spirit of God, when he put this book together, uh, chose words because there was significance to the words. And not only that, that he arranges them in an order that um, it, it reveals divine genius. Now what I'm suggesting to you, ladies and gentlemen, is that there's something very significant about the order of those two words. First of all, 
what is ungodliness? Well, basically, um, to make it simple, it is wrong views, wrong thoughts, wrong ideas about who God is. What is unrighteousness? Uh, made it made simple, it is simply um, bad acts, wrong acts, indecent acts, wicked acts, etc. Now, m my point is, ladies and gentlemen, is that is what God is angry about. He is angry about ungodliness and unrighteousness. And my friends, it always follows that sequence. That is, unrighteousness is made possible only because of ungodliness. Unrighteousness is always the inevitable result of ungodliness. Once I think wrongly about God, it will invariably result in wrong living. If I think wrongly about who He is, that will be made manifest in the way that I live. Do you remember um, when Jesus was asked, what's the foremost commandment of all? You remember what he said? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. My, the point is, if we were to properly understand who he is and respond appropriately, we would never have to worry about unrighteousness. Unrighteousness is always the result of thinking poorly, thinking shabbily about who God is. If I hear it one, I heard it again today. Ladies and gentlemen, if you adopt an approach to life that it is God's duty and God's intent to make you happy, I want you to know it is going to show up in a lifestyle of abject wickedness. I heard it again today. Well, God surely wants me happy. No, ladies and gentlemen. God has never said that. But, and, and this man, of course, had just left his wife and um, married a woman that he met in, on the West Coast. And the ex-wife had just gotten this news some three months after the fact. And the man's defense is, God wants me happy. Do you see the point I'm simply trying to make? It is simply this. Once you think wrongly about who God is, what he says, what he demands, and what he loves, and what he hates, it will inevitably show up in wrong living. Ungodliness, wrong views of who God is, invariably results in wrong living. That, ladies and gentlemen, is why you find the sequence that you do. One precedes the other. Always. You know the quote... Um, from Dostoevsky, actually, actually, I don't know it, but it goes something like this. Uh, when there is no God, nothing is, nothing is impossible. Nothing is ruled out. There is no, folks, all wicked living is going to begin with our wrong thinking about who God is and what he's like. So basically, ladies and gentlemen, God is angry against sin. Wrath revealed against sin. And what I'm saying is, what constitutes sin? It's wrong thoughts and wrong acts. 
Now, folks, again, you must understand that if there are wrong thoughts and there are wrong acts, then there are standards by which those things can be measured. There, there is nothing wrong if there is no standard by which those things can be measured. But God apparently understands that there's a standard because he's angry against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. I want to suggest to you, ladies and gentlemen, that the real essence of sin is ungodliness thinking wrongly about who God is. And once I adopt a God, not that has been revealed, but a God who has been concocted, no telling what I'll do. No telling where I'll head. No telling what kind of behavior will be mine. The real essence of sin is wrong views of God, wrong thoughts about God. If our, if our attitude about him was always right, we would never commit unrighteous acts. You know, you've heard the, the famous uh, Martin Luther quote, love God and do as you please. You know, th that's a dangerous statement uh, handled wrongly, but when rightly understood, ladies and gentlemen, it is utterly profound. Love God, do as you please. Because if there is right understanding of who he is and right understanding of what he demands of me, yeah, yeah I can do as I please. But once that is twisted or perverted in any way, it will show up in the way that I live, invariably. You know, the, um, the rich young ruler came bopping into the presence of Jesus and says, okay, what must I do to get to heaven, you know? And, and Jesus says, well, yeah, yeah, you know, uh, um, don't steal, don't, don't lie, don't commit adultery. Oh, well, you know, I've always done that. And, you know, there's a sense in which he could say that accurately. But if Jesus, and of course Jesus handled him with his own divine Jesus, a genius. But if, if we could look into the face of the rich young ruler and say, okay, here's the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the great commandment, and I haven't done it 30 seconds in my entire life. And if that's the great commandment, and I haven't done it 30 seconds in my entire life, then I'm guilty of the great transgression. And the great transgression comes invariably when I think wrongly about who God is. You know, um, so many, I, I think you, you have as many friends like this more than I do perhaps, but you see, for a person to conclude that he is fit to stand in the presence of God reflects that he doesn't understand who God is. He has, he has thought up his own. He doesn't understand holiness, for instance. And so for him to, to, to think that he can perform that act and stand in God's presence is ultimate wickedness. But it's derived from his not understanding who God has said he is. That, ladies and gentlemen, is what God reveals his wrath over all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, um, <clears throat> there's another thing that I want you to see. We're going to have to kind of leap ahead. There's a second reason why God has manifested his wrath. 
Um, and and we'll, we're going to piece this thing back together, but you know, you're going to have to be here next week. That's just, that's just the deal. Um, there's another reason why God has manifested his, his wrath, and it is this. It is sin's utter inexcusability. I want you to see something, ladies and gentlemen, that's mentioned in verse 20. Um, just this, the last clause, so that they are without excuse. Now, we're going to explain that in, a minute, in several minutes. But first of all, you must understand this. No man will ever be able to stand in the presence of God and say, if you'd only explained it to me, if you'd only let me in on it, I would have responded. The blame is not mine because I just didn't have the opportunity to respond, you know? No, ladies and gentlemen, what we have here is a statement of, a, a categoric statement that's, that says, when men stand before God, they will be without excuse. Mankind can in no way plead ignorance. Now, having stated that, let me show you what this passage says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, gang, there's a lot of different translations of that word, um, suppressed, restrained. I don't know exactly what your translation is. I think the best word is suppressed. Suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You must, you must see this. To suppress the truth means what? It implies that you must first have, or at least know, some truth. Truth, which we're told here, is suppressed. But I want you to notice in verse 21. Um, where is verse 21? Because although they knew God, there it is again, it is also stated in verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge... That's very important, ladies and gentlemen, because what we're saying here is that there is a certain knowledge of God that men had, that they possessed, and what did they do with it? They took that truth, and they suppressed it. They, they held it down. They kept it hidden. They took what they knew and they suppressed that truth in unrighteousness. Now, gang, in what ways does this text suggest that God has made that knowledge known to them? Read with me. Look at verse 19. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. Do you see that little prepositional phrase, manifest in them? There is a sense, ladies and gentlemen, there is a sense of God that is in all mankind. It is there because God put it there. 
You know, um, have you heard the little, I remember saying this, uh, oh gosh, a couple of years ago, and I thought everybody had heard this. If you've never heard this little quip, here's an, but I mean, there are no atheists in foxholes. Surely you've heard that. But it's, it's always remarkable to me that when we have a tragedy in this country, and, and I'm not trying to make light of tragedies at all, ladies and gentlemen, when we have, when, when we have tragedy in this country, I hear Tom Brokaw telling me to pray. And I want to say, to whom? To whom would you have me pray? I mean, <clears throat> I, I, uh, we here have a crisis here in Memphis, and the disc jockeys on FM 100 say, we need to pray. And, and, and I agree. <laughs> but why then? Why has it all of a sudden become urgent? Because I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, tragedy has, has brought them down to that place where only they and God go. And there is this, this manifestation of God in them that God built into all of us, ladies and gentlemen. You can call it conscience. You can call it what you like. But um, God has been manifest in them. There is another way, ladies and gentlemen, that this text suggests that God is known to all mankind. For since, verse 20, verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by things that are made. What that statement suggests, ladies and gentlemen, is simply that from the day this cosmos began, there were certain attributes of God that were not simply seen. No, no. They were clearly seen. Clearly seen. How were how those attributes seen? Where were those attributes seen? The text says, being understood by things that are made. Simply stated, that in creation, ladies and gentlemen, there are attributes of God that can be clearly seen. In fact, it even mentions two of those attributes. Even his eternal power and Godhead. There's a lot of difference of translations on that Godhead. His divine nature. Um, <clears throat> gang, what this text is claiming is that in creation... There are certain things that are clearly understood about who God is. Um, you can see him, you know, and, and, and I'm not, this is not the Discovery Channel here at, at, at Gracie Van, but if you ever watch any of those fascinating, in fact, I just, um, <laughs> I just canceled my, my subscription to U.S. News and World Report because, you know, it's just nothing but things that we already are concerned about anyway. That's why I can't listen to Rush Limbaugh. I can't listen, folks. I, I'm afraid he's right. Uh, if he is, oh my, surely it's not that bad out there. But, but that's why, I mean, I, I can't. So anyway, I've, gotten, I've got a new subscription to National Geographic. Because um, at least I can look at the pictures and see some of the, the, that, that marvelous display of God's genius in creation. But one of the pictures, one of the pictures in, in the last National Geographic I saw, I don't know what month it was, but it's this picture of this fish. And this fish has got its mouth open. 
And it's got these teeth that, you know, just are, you know, look like they could rip through flesh in a heartbeat. And I'm, I'm, maybe you saw this picture. But in the mouth of this, this predatory fish that just looks ferocious, there are other little fish in his mouth. And you know what they're doing? They're cleaning his teeth. They're eating the little stuff around his teeth. And he just kind of sits there and keeps his mouth open while they clean his teeth. And I think, where'd y'all learn that? <laughs> How'd you guys figure that out? <laughs> How, ladies and gentlemen? How? It was built into them by their creator. It's instinct. Animal instinct that could not possibly be the product of billions of years of evolutionary progress. But the point is, this text states that in creation, in divine power, you know, ladies and gentlemen, um, we're scheduled for a big uh, earthquake here. Ever been in one of those? You know, they just had one. They just recorded one in Carothersville, I think, at 3.2 just the other day. It was in the, but, I mean, if you've ever seen one of those things, there's a lot of power displayed there. You know, when you watch gale force winds, a lot of power. And in that, ladies and gentlemen, there is a display being put on for you. A display of his eternal power. You know, we have a, a doctor that goes to this church, and his testimony is, that the more he worked on the human body, the more he could not deny the, the, the marvelous design and intricacy and genius in the functioning of the human body. My point is, um, since the creation, his eternal power and divine nature. In the, in the seasons and in the order and in, the, in all of those things, gang, there is a display being put on. A display of the nature of God. Now, folks, you've got to listen. That which is referred to here in Romans 1 is what in theological circles is called nothing more than general revelation. You can call it natural revelation. There are certain things being revealed in nature but here's the, the, uh, the distinction that you must keep in mind. General revelation is not enough to save anybody. But it is enough to render men excuseless. Before anyone will come to a saving knowledge of Christ, there has to be another brand of revelation, which in theological circles is called nothing more than special revelation. You have general revelation, special revelation. It is mentioned and discussed in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But the preaching of these things are foolishness. But um, they are spiritually appraised in the price. That's a, that's a reference to special revelation. Um... <clears throat> Eternal power, creation, all these things, folks, is 
establishes that God is, a crea- is the creator and is the moral governor of this universe. But it is not enough to render, to, to save anyone. But it is enough to render men excuseless. Why? Because it is that knowledge, ladies and gentlemen, that people took and suppressed it in unrighteousness. Do you see the intricacy of the argument? For the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and righteousness. Because the truth of God has been repressed, suppressed, and unrighteous. What truth? Oh, well, the truth of <clears throat> the truth of conscience, the truth of creation, the truth that God made clearly seen. And what did they do with that truth? They said, I don't like where it leads. And so we got to keep it under wraps. We don't have anybody. I, I, I've used an illustration in the past. Let me use it real quickly that I hope will make this simple. Imagine two of the, the most um, um, uncivilized cannibals walking through um, uh, a, a forest in New Guinea. And they, they're walking down the path there, and they, uh, I, I had just visited New Guinea, as you know, and, and I dropped my wristwatch. And these two uncivilized uh, cannibals come upon my watch. It's glittering in the sunshine. They pick up my watch, and one <clears throat> marvels at it and shows it to his friend. That's really something. I watch. Then they take off the back, and they see this marvelous uh, engineering that has gone in to make this thing. And um, then one turns to the, his friend and says, um, did you make this watch? And he said, no, I didn't make that watch. And the other one says, did you make the watch? And he said, no, I didn't make the watch either. And then they realize, well, then who was it that made this watch? And then they, they examine it a bit further, and they say, they conclude very rightly, I don't know who, who made the watch, but whoever made this watch is far more brilliant than the, either one of us. And he has at his disposal power and might that you and I have never known anything about. At that juncture, ladies and gentlemen, a critical decision is faced. A crisis of faith arises. What do we do now? I tell you what we do. We go look and make sure that we find this one who made this watch. That's what would be intelligent. But what, what would be unrighteous would be to take that information that they have found and hide it and keep it and make sure that nobody ever hears anything about that. That, ladies and gentlemen, is what has happened in Romans 1. For what could be clearly seen about God, knowledge that should have been used to improve and then improved upon to go find this creator, they said, no, 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 no. We don't like where this leads. So, in, hey, did you make the tree? No, I didn't make the tree. Did you make the tree? No, I didn't make the tree. Who made the tree? I don't know who made the tree. I tell you what, instead of finding out who made the tree, why don't we cut it down and form it into something that we can worship? And that, ladies and gentlemen, 
has made God very angry. And the wrath of God from heaven is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I close with this. If those people are rendered excuseless, how much more people like us who have had countless opportunities to find this God but decided, oh no, let's just ignore that fact and go on and live in our our ungodliness and our wickedness. That's why, ladies and gentlemen, no man will ever be able to stand before God and say, but I never heard about Jesus. <clears throat> Let me pray and then I'll dismiss you. Our Father, um, I pray that your word will, will be a, a delight in the lives and hearts of your people tonight. I pray that you will use it to, um, to guide us and steer us and clear up for us questions that perhaps have existed for, for years. But Father, uh, if not that, if we already understood that, might it provoke from us a sense of awe that we might not come to this book to critique it, but that we might come to this book allowing it to critique us, being brought more and more into conformity with its precepts and mandates so that we might find heaven smiling. For those of us who have found the Savior, O oh God, thank you. It is by sovereign grace that the righteousness of God was exposed to us, and we glory in that discovery. Now dismiss us, O oh God, with a sense of your, um, your ownership. We want to know when we leave here that we are yours and you are ours. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're in a